Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, November 17th. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our senior analyst, Chaviv Rektikur, and real estate editor, Danielle Nagler. Hello to you both. Hi, Amanda. Good morning. So good to see you. Coalition talks are ongoing, but so are the rumors that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is wooing some other partners, even as the world oyvays the end of Israeli democracy. Chaviv will weigh in. Danielle is here to talk about the tanking mortgage market and a new amusement park for the Negev. But first, a short break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. Chaviv, let's start with you. As you know, I was just away for almost a week. And while the extreme right coalition seemed a sure thing before I left, there are these constant niggling rumors that Netanyahu is in talks with Yeshatid head Yair Lapid and outgoing defense minister Benny Gantz. Do these rumors actually have any legs? No. <laughs> so what is going on here? Is it just some kind of wishful thinking on the part of the media? What, why is this happening? I wasn't told there'd be follow-on questions. Um, <laughs> these are not only are they untrue; they're they're very they're very transparently Netanyahu and Likud actually trying to weaken the hand of um, Bezalel Smotrich, who is angling for the defense ministry, and really I think wants the defense ministry because one of his most important central themes and priorities is, of course, the West Bank, the settlements, what happens in Area C, and. Benjamin Netanyahu is desperate not to give it to him. He's desperate not to give it to him for a few reasons, uh, but I think there really is one single true reason, um, and all the others are excuses. The single true reason is that Netanyahu sees his future, his legacy, his identity as a leader, and and this is true for the last decade and a half, in that defense diplomatic realm. He wants the Abraham Accords to expand. He wants those issues to be issues that he can take credit for and have control over. He wants to control. He doesn't trust the far right when it comes to the next uh, potential war on uh, Lebanon or, or Gaza or any other issue having to do with Iran. He just doesn't want to give them a veto on those questions. And the defense ministry, to some significant extent, has a veto, has a very profound influence on those questions. And so we've seen every trick in the book over the last week. Benjamin Netanyahu ran in a campaign that complained that Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett were bending in the wind 
of American pressure. They were doing what the Biden administration demanded. They were they had no backbone on the question of the Lebanese uh, maritime agreement, for example. Netanyahu gave an entire speech uh, timed for national television. I don't think it was broadcast by most channels, but still, it was timed for it, in which he accused Lapid of you know bending to to American will. And then the most significant excuse to leak out of Likud this week why Smotrich cannot be defense minister is that American ambassador Tom Nides called Netanyahu and said, we, uh, the Biden administration, can't work with certain figures as in the defense ministry. Now, that's $3.8 billion of aid a year, a tremendous amount of cooperation in, in uh, development and, and R&D and intelligence. And so the defense minister of Israel does need to be able to work with the Americans. But the idea that American pressure on this point would become public and from Netanyahu as an excuse to keep Smotrich out. This is all this is all part of the negotiations. And the other part of the negotiations that we've seen, besides saying that he's pretending that he has talks with the opposition, the soon-to-be opposition, is uh, the dividing conquer that he's playing with uh, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, right? Netanyahu sat down with Ben Gvir yesterday and handed Ben Gvir some significant policy changes, or as Smotrich's people noted, promises of policy changes, which when it comes to Netanyahu were very, very different things from actual policy changes, and uh, having to do with uh, legalizing certain illegal settlements and and uh, a whole host of other things, investing in infrastructures, uh, dealing with minimum uh, sentences for certain kinds of crimes, Ben Gvir really was elected on a protest vote over uh, crime waves and inter-ethnic tensions. And Netanyahu did that to show that Ben Gvir was winning policy victories while um, while uh, Smotrich was stuck in uh, fights over what position he would have. Smotrich responded, essentially, his people by saying, policy promises don't count for much from Netanyahu, uh, which is quite a thing to say in negotiations with a man. Uh, what you need is the position to actually make sure it happens. And so all of this, all of these things put together are really how this government is going to be run. This government is going to be a government in which they are constantly wary of being cheated by Netanyahu. Netanyahu is constantly finagling and maneuvering to try and avoid either making promises or keeping those promises if he thinks that they limit his room for maneuver. That's that's going to be how things work moving forward. And and Smotrich knew that. And, uh, and we should expect nothing else. Okay, Khabib. In 2016, this wise man, or at least a wise guy, wrote an op-ed in the Times of Israel that was called The End of Israeli Democracy. Do you know who that was? Was it me? It was you. And so now I'm wondering, (laughs) what is different today than all those years ago? Is it just history repeating itself? Or is this really the end of democracy? No, it's a democracy. Israeli democracy ended in 2016. If that's what I wrote, that's what happened. (laughs) Look, here's the problem with discussions about the end of Israeli democracy, okay? The problem with them is that, A, democracies fall. We should be worried. It is important to be worried. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, on the way to founding the first modern democracy, talk about the fragility of democracy and the need for constant vigilance and all. We, it, it, it's important not to, to make fun of the constant chicken little Israeli democracies collapsing. 
That's one. That's the most important thing. The second most important thing to say is that in 1977, when Menachem Begin won that election, and for the first time in 29 years, Mapai, or the Labour Party as it's known today, lost. In other words, this one party that founded the state, appointed the heads of the security services, controlled most of the state of, of the country's industries because they were largely state-owned or state-run. This party that whose last prime minister was the former chief of staff of the army. In other words, this country that you would be forgiven for thinking looks a lot like Pakistan. They finally lost an election after 29 years. And I have editorials that I have clipped from media then in that time on the left, where the media on the left explained that because Menachem Begin is a fascist, this party that has yet to lose an election in 29 years should not give him, let him actually take power just because he won an election in order to save Israeli democracy. They should not let Menachem Begin take power after winning an election. The discourse around democracy, um, Israelis are very bad at talking about democracy. Democracy tends to mean, I win, and if I don't win, it isn't a democracy. That is true of the left since the 70s, and that is true of the right. If you look at the right talking about when it's important to protect uh, minority rights, it's generally when the right is in the opposition, and then suddenly it's no longer in the opposition, and it wants an override clause because the majority rule is what democracy is. Israelis are bad at talking about democracy. They don't have a frame of reference. They don't have a clear sense of where their own democracy comes from. Israeli democracy wasn't born in a Philadelphia convention or some kind of a a clear liberal discourse at the founding of the state where anybody... We have almost no institutions. We have a debate now over an override bill of the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court has repeatedly shot down Knesset attempts to reform questions like the ultra-Orthodox draft law. Now, the ultra-Orthodox draft law is a question that genuinely matters. There's a lot of fights this week about the... um, uh, attacks on sugary drinks. Nobody actually cares about that. That's posturing. That's silly. But the profound thing that is not posturing and is not silly is for the ultra-Orthodox parties, the draft law. And they believe they can't pass a draft law that allows their um, yeshiva students not to serve in the military or in other forms of national service. They can't pass it because the Supreme Court will overrule it. And they are willing to break any institution and any rule to get that done. Now, Israeli democracy is discovering, because from both from the left, from the court's behavior, and from the right, that it doesn't maybe have the tools to actually sort out these fundamental, profound disagreements and culture wars. And that is dangerous. Israeli democracy won't end when the override clause passes. An override clause of 61 out of 120 votes, a simple majority in the Knesset, not a simple majority of the MKs in the room, it's not, you know, two to one, but but nevertheless a simple majority of all MKs is the proposal, and that would mean that if the Supreme Court rules that something is illegal or unconstitutional, the Knesset could nevertheless, some law, some decision of the Knesset, the Knesset could nevertheless pass it, and it becomes the law of the land because it can override the court. The debate around this has been very shallow, um, and that's to me very frustrating. Israel's Supreme Court is the single most powerful court in the free world. It is a court that in in 2002, while the Israeli army was fighting a battle in Jenin, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court received a petition from a few rights groups, Adala and a few others, that Israel was committing war crimes in Jenin. 
this was the claim of people like Saib Erikat and the PLO, and the reality on the ground was that there were no war crimes being committed. It was, in fact, a pitched battle between IDF soldiers and Fatah gunmen. The Fatah gunmen managed to kill, I believe, 26 IDF soldiers with 54 losses for themselves. It was the most successful battle Palestinians had ever waged against the IDF, but Faced with this claim that there was a war crime, the Chief Justice Supreme Court called up the commander on the ground and said, you must stop the battle until the court can convene, and it is the weekend, so you have to wait for the weekend until the court can convene early next week, and the Israeli army stopped fighting for the course of that weekend. Now, folks, there is no court in the free world. You know, there is no one who can appeal to the American Supreme Court to say that the American army in Afghanistan is doing something wrong, and therefore the Supreme Court calls the army in Afghanistan, stops the battle in Afghanistan for a weekend until it can meet again. I, I digress. There are many ways to rein in and reform this court without essentially canceling its capacity to protect minorities. The reason that people are afraid that an override bill would basically cancel the court's ability to protect minorities is that there there are no other institutions. We don't have a bicameral parliament elected in different cross-sections of the population like you have in the United States or in Austria or in Switzerland. We don't have uh, an executive that's meaningfully separate from the parliament. And so we actually have almost no institutions, and that's that's very scary to minorities. Now, you, you could... Cr- weaken the court, or not weaken the court, but make the court at least more representative in much, much less extreme ways. And that's not being debated. For example, and I'll end with this, the Israeli Supreme Court has a veto on appointments to the Israeli Supreme Court. That's an extraordinary thing. Uh, The uh, Judicial Appointments Committee is a nine-member committee, and you need seven votes to pass a member and appoint them to the Supreme Court. This court itself has three members on that committee, and in hundreds and probably thousands of actual votes on candidates over the last two, three decades, or at least since 2002, since the committee had its current form, those three members never voted separately. They always voted as a block. And so the court always votes as a block and therefore has a veto on appointments to itself. Well, guess what? That seven out of nine system in which the court has three members was instituted in 2002. The right wing likes to say that the court is actually losing ground in terms of public trust, but the court is orders of magnitude more trusted by Israelis. It is losing ground, but it is still by far more trusted than the Knesset or the government. And so we need a much more serious debate. We need to stop this chicken little talk about Israeli democracy collapsing and start to talk about what a better Israeli democracy actually looks like. Khabib, I look forward to uh, reading your 20,000-word analysis on this uh, very soon on the site. Thank you. We'll go to a short break now. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast, For Heaven's Sake, from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. 
You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Danielle, just last night, my 17-year-old son was moaning that he doesn't see a way that he could buy a home here in Israel. And he was quoting figures that the home prices went up by some 20% this year. Obviously, he learned everything on TikTok. But you have a piece coming out today that says that mortgage borrowing in Israel has continued to decline amid rising interest rates and soaring housing costs. But could this be the push we need to lower the cost of housing? I wish I could say yes. But at one level, what we're seeing doesn't make any sense at all because it seems like fewer houses are being sold, fewer new apartments and fewer old apartments. We're seeing a reduction in the levels of mortgage borrowing, as you say, uh, down to levels that we haven't seen in a long, long while. But meanwhile, every month, the housing price index breaks new records. We thought it couldn't go any higher last month. This month, it's up another 1%. That's figures for October. And your son is absolutely right. It's at running at just below 20%. In Yum, over the last year, we've seen increases of around 40% in the price of apartments. And it seems like... Uh, fewer apartments are selling, but people are holding out for that high price that they believe these apartments are worth. And we're seeing that in the building sector as well, that builders who have overpaid for plots of land are determined to sell at a certain price point, and they'd rather hang on to the stock, rent it out, or, or simply leave it empty than sell it at a lower discounted price. But for your average Israeli, not only are the prices going up, but they're becoming more and more and more unaffordable. 20% increase in the cost of homes. The average apartment in Israel now costs 1.9 million shekels. That means in order to buy it, you need to have saved up 500,000 to 600,000 shekels, which is not an insignificant amount. And you need to be able to pay increasingly high mortgage rates because in addition, the Bank of Israel has pushed up interest rates, they've gone up by about one and a half percent in just a couple of months. And if you're borrowing money now for a home, you're likely to be paying around six percent, around at least a thousand shekels extra per month. 
every month of that 25 to 30 year loan. Okay, so it's really a good time to build a huge amusement park in the negative and ex escape all of our problems. I never like to discuss plans in any kind of way because these so often don't actually happen. But you wrote this uh, recent piece about the negative park, which may be our answer to your Disney. Do you think it'll actually happen? Well, this is our small spark of, of joy. This plan, don't worry, has been 10 years in the making. So it's already already spent a long time getting off the starting blocks. What we're seeing now is a call for international investment to actually make the, the plan reality. The idea is to build a seven Dunam park with hotels and holiday villages and water attractions and regular rides just on the outskirts of, of Beersheba. Uh, firstly, it's part of the overall strategy to create more destinations for tourists to come to. When tourists come to Israel, they go to Tel Aviv, they go to Jerusalem, they may venture out to visit one or two other places. But what Israel's trying to, to do is to create more locations for internal tourism, which has become more significant through the COVID period. Um, and to create more destinations for international tourists to come to. There is also, alongside the plan for the rides, which is the one that grabs me, there is a thought that maybe we could put another international airport next to this park to fly visitors straight in. I, I, I think that's a little far-fetched um, and it's going to take us four to five years to see anything actually built on this site. But on the other hand, we've seen a new amusement park, Magic Cast, open in Malé Adumim very, very successfully. And I think there is this sense that Israel is looking to develop different branches of tourism. And it's maybe not focused previously on big developments for family touring and for, for, for children to go to. And assuming that this gets up off the ground, and there's no reason to think that it won't, there's a budget of 15 million dollars already allocated to this. There's commitment to the infrastructure around it. And of course, there's a big need in the South to provide employment opportunities, which this park will help to go some way towards resolving. Um, so I think we will see it. I think if we wait five years, we will have this amazing place to go to. I am not convinced it will rival Euro Disney. Uh, but nonetheless, for those with younger children, it's one worth keeping a watch on because it will provide a really good reason to go down south and simply to have fun. And I think that with difficult times on so many fronts, having fun is kind of worth it. I think the real question is, what will the mascot be? Khaviv and Danielle, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.